As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to Nobody Told Me. I'm Jan Black. And I'm Laura Owens. Let's face it, there are few things in life that hurt more than a broken heart. Dr. Guy Winch is the author of the new book, How to Fix a Broken Heart, which aims to help people heal after a breakup or death of someone that they love. He's a licensed psychologist, author, and in-demand keynote speaker who's a leading advocate for integrating the science of emotional health into every single aspect of our daily lives. His viral TED Talk, which is awesome, everyone should watch it, Why We All Need to Practice Emotional First Aid, has been viewed more than 5 million times and is rated among the top five most inspiring talks of all time on TED.com, which is a hell of an achievement. Dr. Winch, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. So how did you become so interested in having a career dedicated to emotional science? So I'm a psychologist, and when I got my degree, the model that they told us that the ideal was in graduate school was the scientist-practitioner model, the, the, where you learn to be a clinician, but you become a consumer and a, and a, and a creator of science as well. And that was, turns out that was a lot of lip service because people chose one or the other. They became clinicians and never looked at a journal again, or they became scientists and never looked at a patient again. Um, and I actually remained true to that in some way. I became a clinician, but I was always uh, reading science journals to see updates because there's so many of them. And, um, you know, I started seeing a lot of research about uh, heartbreak, and I certainly encountered that in my practice. And between those two, uh, I, uh, that was heartbreak. But in general, I saw a lot of research that was about, um, you know, things, common experiences we, we all have. And the research is written for other researchers. It's not really user-friendly for clinicians or certainly for the public. And I would translate little interventions that I could make out there and try them on my patients. And they would be like, oh, that was useful. And so I started doing that more and more. And then I started writing books to kind of bring that to uh, the rest of the world. What was that like to, to sit across from hundreds, if not thousands of patients over the years with broken hearts? It's rough. I mean, you, you, when you do this work, you uh, work with people and you work with people who've been through all kinds of loss and grief and trauma and life experiences. And, and the people who come in, you know, sobbing their eyes out of a, about much minor, more minor things sometimes, but for them, they're very significant. And so you have to usually find a way to manage that, right? That you can't, you know, you can't be that bereft every day 
and still have a life. And so there's a, you know, there are ways you, you, you figure out in which you can be very present for people and, and, and really be there with them, but, but keep, you know, a certain level of defense up. And heartbreak was one of those it was very hard to do that with. You know, like it just, the, the raw agony of people um, was so profound that it, 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 it was always a little bit challenging. But I also figured early on that, okay, if they see that I'm a little distressed by their distress, that's okay. It's a human response. It's not something, it's something we can talk about, but it's not something I need to like truly avoid doing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Why is it that broken hearts hurt so much from like an evolutionary standpoint? So it, it's related um, in a way. Well, first I should say actually that the studies in the brain, the brain scans, the functional MRI studies, show that really the mechanisms in the brain that are activated when we have emotional pain um, are very similar to the ones that get activated when we're experiencing physical pain. Uh, some people write that you know literally the the pathways for emotional pain in the brain literally piggyback on pathways for physical pain. So there's a big similarity with heartbreak and that kind of emotional pain. I'm not talking about disappointment or stuff like that. I'm talking about like real hurt feelings and heartbreak. There's a very much a similarity. In one study, people even uh, put uh, subjects through a rejection experience and gave half of them sugar pills and half of them sugar pills, but it was actually Tylenol and the people who got Tylenol reported less emotional pain from the uh, rejection experience. So in other words, it even works with painkillers. I'm not, I'm not suggesting Tylenol is the answer to heartbreak. <laughs> but it was a proof of concept study and it was a good proof of concept, you know, in that way. Um, but, but there's a, you know, but in terms of evolution, rejection always had um, a big, uh, causes a big uh, uh, sting emotionally. And the research tells us that even if there's a group of people who we despise, but they reject us, we feel hurt. Even if we despise them, we would never hang out with them if our life depended on it. But if they reject us, we're still going to feel hurt. And so part of the curiosity scientists had about that was why? Uh-huh. Yeah. Why would yeah. we act that? I mean, if we can't yeah. stand the people, you know, because um, they they did these experiments and they these rejection experiments and then they they were manufactured, they were fake because they had accomplices. And then they told the subjects, oh, you know, the black subjects, they said the person who rejected you is actually some kind of uh, white, you know, white supremacist. And they they, they told the Jewish subjects that it was, uh, you know, some kind of neo-Nazi group. And um, so, you know, and it didn't matter. The people still felt hurt and annoyed by the fact that they did, but they still felt hurt. And the evolutionary reason is that when we were hunter-gatherers in tribes, being ostracized from the tribe was pretty much a death sentence. You couldn't survive by yourself. So we developed this early warning mechanism for a risk of ostracism. That is, when we felt rejected, um, that was the risk. And the people who experienced that as more painful were more likely to correct their behavior, stay around and pass along their genes. And so there was an evolutionary advantage for experiencing rejection as painful. And over the generations, that got supersized. And now we're left with that um, uh, legacy. And there's also the evolutionary legacy of losing uh, children, which gets generalized, um, which obviously is, is important to be painful because then you have, you know, uh, the, the, the mothers taking care of their children, you know, in, in evolutionary terms. But that got also generalized so that now we experience loss in that very painful way, even if it's a friend or a, a romantic interest.
We're honored you're part of our Nobody Told Me family of listeners. And if you're like us, your pet is a member of the family. We've had 15 dogs over the years, most of them rescues. They've each been unique characters with their own likes and dislikes in terms of food. Lately, we've been feeding them Nom Nom, and it's a big hit with each of the three dogs we currently have. One of our dogs is young, one is middle-aged, and one is a senior. And they all wag their tails and get excited when we put Nom Nom in their bowls. Nom Nom delivers food fresh dog food with every portion personalized to your dog's needs so you can bring out their best. Every Nom Nom meal features high quality proteins and vegetables mixed with targeted vitamins and minerals to provide the essential nutrients dogs need at every life stage. Nom Nom's made with real whole food you can see and recognize without any additives or fillers that contribute to bloating or low energy. Our dogs love Nom Nom and we love seeing how happy it makes them. Nom Nom uses the latest science and insights to make real good food for dogs. Their nutrient-packed recipes are crafted by board-certified veterinary nutritionists, made fresh and shipped free to your door. Nom Nom's already delivered over 40 million meals to good dogs like yours, inspiring millions of clean bowls and tail wags. It feels great to see how much our dogs enjoy Nom Nom. Plus, Nom Nom comes with a money-back guarantee. If your dog's tail isn't wagging within 30 days, Nom Nom will refund your first order. No fillers, no nonsense, just Nom Nom. Go right now for 50% off your no-risk two-week trial at trynom.com slash nobody spelled try n o m dot com slash nobody for 50% off try nom.com slash nobody one of the chapters in your book talks about how the brokenhearted are abandoned in our society tell us more about that it's a really interesting thing that um which when i point out to people, they go, oh, yeah, that their uh, empathy um, for physical pain is usually uh, pretty open-ended. You know, like, you know, I had a friend once who had, you know, was a burn victim. They had the bandages exchanged for, for a long, long, long time. And n- no one's patience ever expired because they were really in, in pain for so long. Everyone was like, oh, this is so terrible. When it comes to empathy for emotional pain, it kind of comes with an expiration date. And that expiration date is when unconsciously or consciously we feel you should be over it. And, you know, if you're really hurting, I'll be there for you. But at the point I feel, you know, you kind of should be over it by now. My empathy will evaporate and I'll start to feel annoyed and even resentful. And so the brokenhearted, it always takes them longer to recover than their friends kind of think um, it should. Um, And then the friends start losing patience. And from having that support, they go to sometimes alienating their group of friends who just can't hear that story one more time. So how often do you think a person who's getting over a broken heart can speak to that friend? Can you maybe send them a text a couple of times a day to say that you're having a rough time? Or if you're kind of getting the vibe that they're not wanting to support you anymore, do you just need to back off completely? So I actually think that what you need to do is throughout, from the beginning, keep your eye on the ball of what that friendship is actually about. In other words, that friendship was about you talking about a specific set of things, doing specific things, right? There was a there was a culture to that friendship of what you spoke about, what you did, who you hanged out with, when you got together. If now that is being totally usurped into them being supportive to your heartbreak, then that really changed the terms of the friendship. And one of the things that you can do is even from the beginning, moderate that. And, you know, say maybe, maybe not the first day or week, 
speak if you're totally heartbroken. But thereafter, say, look, I'd love to talk about it, etc. But then let's go and do that thing that we do. Or let's then go watch the movie anyway, or play the round of golf, or do the shopping, or whatever it is we do. Let's keep doing, let's keep doing us. And then, you know, so there'll be a segment devoted to me and my heartbreak, but let's keep and you don't have to say it you can just actually make it happen um but i think that will modulate things because then the person isn't feeling like wow the whole you know terms of the deal change number one and number two i would kind of spread that wealth a little bit in terms of you know i wouldn't you know we have some friends who are much more um, emotionally expressive and emotionally validating than others and it's much more satisfying to talk to someone who can ooh and ah along the way and make you really feel that they totally get it as opposed to someone who sits there stoically and after an hour says ooh bummer you know that's not that satisfying obviously so we'll gravitate more towards the former than the latter but we can actually make uh, pains to spread it around when we feel someone's patience is waning, we can actually, I would address it with a friend. I would say, look, I realize you're getting a little impatient. I know it's taking me a long time to get over this. Let's, I'll, I'll try not to belabor it. I just want to be able to feel that I can talk about it once in a while, if that's okay with you. And then you have a talk about it. But it's actually to the advantage of the brokenhearted person to not be talking about the breakup. Isn't that right? Because then you're just prolonging the pain and thinking more about all the specifics and glorifying that person in your mind. It seems like it's just a better situation for everybody if you kind of try and gradually move on. Yeah. And, and keyword there being gradually. In other words, the value of talking um, about any kind of emotional distress, frankly, is that you can gain perspective from it. You can gain understanding from it. You can gain insight. You can gain action plans. You can figure out how to handle, how not to handle. In other words, there's there's a very productive side of that talking, which is problem solving, which is insight getting, which is, you know, like being able to really come to terms with things. And so that's a useful um, uh, part of it. At the point, and there's always this point in heartbreak where you spent a couple of weeks talking, you've gone through the what happened and why and how come this and how come that, and now it's a repetition. Now you're treading the same ground, you're going over the same story, you're still, but I still don't understand why, you know, and um, if you're still saying, I still don't understand why, but you're not adding any new perspective, you're not getting any new insights, then you're just in this emotional hamster wheel. Then it's really not productive, it's just probably deepening your pain at the point where you've gleaned what you need to glean, and you've, and you've, and you've uh, figured out what you need to figure out, what you can, you cannot, you know, there's always stuff to figure out, but you can't always do that. Um, but at the point where you're starting to repeat yourself and the person's already heard that story three times, four times, um, that's a point in which that thinking or that talking is not productive and it's just making it worse. What are some of the other mistakes you see people making in trying to fix their broken hearts? So, first of all, just so many. Uh, and and they can be grouped into certain categories. But, you know, part of why I wrote the book is because it's taking us way longer to get over heartbreak than it should. And we are hurting may more, way more than we should because we are making so many mistakes. And so one of them is, is what we just referred to is that we are just repeating things over and over and over again, not getting any new insight for them. But if you think of it this way, if, if you think of a time where you broke a limb or had a toothache, um, your tooth is not going to start hurting from that memory. Neither is your limb. If you think of a time where, let's say, you called customer service and got really aggravated and you actually went through that in your head, you're going to start getting aggravated. 
just from just from that memory and the same is true of heartbreak when you go over it with these same questions over and over again it is causing you distress it is bringing up all the hurt it is bringing up all the upset it is flooding your system with cortisol it is you know stressing you out it is literally like taking a scab and removing it from a wound every time you do that and the wound needs to scab over and so it's not a useful thing to do uh, beyond a certain point because it is just um, keeping that wound very, very, very fresh. And so that's that's one mistake. The other mistakes we make is that um, we uh, think that it's a great idea to check up on our ex and see what they're going through. Mm-hmm. On know. social media? Uh, yes. Look, our hope is that we will find posts on Facebook in which they're crying their eyes out or, you know, uh, posts on Instagram in which they're absolutely bereft and crying on a friend's shoulder. Um, but they broke up with us. So actually, we're not going to see that. And in fact, we're not posting that stuff either because no one is. Mm-hmm. So um, so you're not going to see that. All you're going to see is them seemingly going on with life. And that will make it feel even more hurtful. And so it's a bad idea for numerous reasons. Number one, it's that removing the scab from the wound and bringing up all the pain again. Number two, it's never good news. It just makes you more frustrated. And then when you finish doing the stalking on social media, what you're left with is, but I don't get it. And then we start replaying all those questions and all those, you know, doubts and all the stuff we've already went through a hundred times all over again, because we just don't get it. Now, there's a reason we don't get it. The reason we don't get it is that when when someone is thinking of breaking up with someone, they're not going to tell them until they want to break up with them. And Mm -hmm. so your experience is, wow, we just had a great weekend. Um, Everything seemed fine. And then on Wednesday, they broke up with me. What happened Monday or Tuesday? In fact, in vast majority of cases, absolutely nothing happened on Monday and Tuesday. They just were kind of faking it over the weekend and up until they were ready. And then they told you, but they have been disengaging emotionally and getting ready to move on and disconnecting for you for weeks or months and sometimes years. You are new to the party. So they are way further ahead getting over you than you are over them because they've been doing it for a long time. They've only told you once they were kind of done with doing that. And maybe they weren't as emotionally invested in it as you were in the first place. That's always possible, but certainly at the point they broke up, they were not. And then when you see them seemingly totally over it, it's not because they got over it in a day. It's because they've been getting over it or been moving away for days and weeks and months. We thank you for being a part of our Nobody Told Me family of listeners, and we want to tell you about our sponsor, Daily Harvest, and a special offer they have just for you. Our lives can get hectic at times, so we're grateful for Daily Harvest, which delivers stress-free meals to your doorstep. Let Daily Harvest do more so you can do less. Daily Harvest delivers delicious harvest bowls, soups, flatbreads, snacks, smoothies, lattes, and more built on organic fruits and vegetables. Daily Harvest works directly with farmers to source the best ingredients and freeze them at peak ripeness to lock in flavor and nutrients. They never use artificial preservatives or ingredients. Daily Harvest is on a mission to make it really easy to eat more fruits and vegetables every day. With nourishing and easy to prepare options, I never have have to think twice about what to eat for my next meal, snack, or dessert. Exactly. Daily Harvest foods stay fresh in my freezer until I'm ready to enjoy them, helping me reduce food waste. 
And by the way, Daily Harvest tomato and basil flatbread is one of my favorites. Mine too. And for a quick snack, you can't go wrong with Daily Harvest Bites. They're the perfect combination of powerful superfoods and a touch of sweetness. Try Daily Harvest Bites in flavors like raspberry and fig or hazelnut and chocolate. You have to check out the Daily Harvest website to see all of the options that are available. And be prepared to spend some time on the website because there are a lot of delicious items to choose from. Daily Harvest is committed to human and planetary health, which means they do their absolute best to ensure transparency and integrity when it comes to their ingredients and the humans who grow them. By supporting farmers who invest in practices that increase biodiversity and improve the health of our soil, and by delivering food in recyclable and compostable packaging where possible, Daily Harvest does the work. We just eat and enjoy. It's a win-win. So let Daily Harvest do more so you can do less. Go to dailyharvest.com slash nobody told me to get up to $40 off your first box. That's dailyharvest.com slash nobody told me to get up to $40 off your first box. Dailyharvest.com slash nobody told me. I had a relationship where my ex-boyfriend and I went on a break that lasted two months and it was a really weird state to be in because I was thinking during the time like, oh, I don't want to date somebody else because I still really like the guy I'd been seeing. And it it just kind of left me in this place where I felt like I really couldn't get over it, but I also couldn't be involved in my old relationship. Is it okay to hold out hope that you might get back with your ex at some point or is that just completely toxic thinking? Okay, so if, if for example, there's a mutually agreed upon break, uh-huh. Um, and, you know, there are breaks and there are breaks. There are, some breaks have very different understandings um, than others. Some breaks are very much in the context of, um, you know, we are still monogamous if we were, and this is a break to kind of clear our head and then get back to the work of, 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 uh, of repairing the relationship. And there are breaks which are like, let's use this as a stepping stone out, or at least one party is saying that. Like, I think I want out, but you know what, let's just take a break and maybe I'll change my mind, which is really just a an excuse for, you know, just not breaking up because you want to let the person down easy, except that's not easy for the other person. So, um, you know, it's very rare that two people agree together. Yeah, we should have a break. It's usually one of them saying that and then the other person agreeing to it probably because they want to preserve the relationship and that's the only option left to them. Um, And then if that's the case, then of course you want to you know, keep your options open. Um, so, uh, you know, in that specific situation, if the person is saying, yes, let's revisit in two months, maybe there's still hope and it would be hard to argue that there's entirely not. Certainly it's not looking great, but maybe there is if the person is saying, let's revisit in, in two months. Um, but ordinarily, uh, the only thing that keeps our hopes alive is, uh, number one, we are massively interested in trying to preserve the relationship because we still have feelings for the person and our heart is broken and that's the antidote to heartbreak, getting the person back. Um, and number two, because there was some kind of unclarity about the end. And so that, you know, it, you know, and often there's unclarity because the person when they're breaking up doesn't want to be that harsh or that, you know, like blunt or that, you know, hurtful. So they soft pedal everything, but that soft pedal can give somebody else hope. Mm -hmm. What in your experience typically enables a person to move on from heartbreak? So I say in the book and in, in, in the book, what I try to do is um, give uh, quite a variety of heartbreak scenarios from long-term relationships 
to really even in in, the, in one case in the book just a, a one-off date that ended up in heartbreak um, because it can be it can be really um, you know uh, varied uh, you know in terms of of what the um, the manifestation uh, of of the heartbreak is and what the the terms and 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 the uh, conditions of it are um, and um, and to to get over it, to to repair, to heal um, uh, properly, you have to start with that last thing we spoke about, and that is a decision to do that. Um, because you have to be able to do things that are very counterintuitive, that very much go against what your gut is telling you. And the only way you can do that is if you really come at it with a decision that you made that you then impose on yourself. And that decision is, I'm moving on. It starts with that. And it's remarkable how many of us don't have that decision and then struggle to move on. And then if you decide, okay, I am moving on, then the first thing you have to do is uh, disconnect and, and, and really have no contact. What would you say to a client who has that feeling that maybe they won't find that sort of connection again? They might not, but this connection's done. And you have to be firm about that with yourself. You have to be, look, if somebody broke up with you, they broke up with you. And that means that there's something, and certainly if it caught you by surprise, then there's something there that, you know, that you weren't doing the math correctly. In other words, your perception of that person and of the relationship was somewhat skewed because you didn't see that coming. You thought they were satisfied. You thought things were all right, and they were not. Or it was very clear that things were not all right. One way or the other, there either is clear evidence of how the relationship wasn't great, or you have to figure out clearly it wasn't for the other person. And then when you start going back, you, you can usually see signs of where there was dissatisfaction voiced by the other person. And so, you know, the, 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 you know, the, the idea is that, that you have to then be very clear that this was not a perfect situation. If it were, we wouldn't be broken up. So I have to amend that idea that I'll never find something so great again. If it was so great, it wouldn't have ended. So there were ways in which it wasn't great. And there were ways and what usually happens after a breakup is the, you know, and, and your friends will say this and, and other people will say this like, wow, there were moments in this relationship, even with your breakup, that you must have thought, I hate this person. I can't stand them. They're annoying the crap out of me. And wow, I really should break up with them. And really, is this the right person? To, I mean, all those doubts are there for most of us in these relationships. And then the minute the breakup happens, bye-bye doubts. And now they're all perfect. Mm -hmm. And now this was actually the best thing that ever happened to me. Well, no. Um, and if you want reminders, you can ask your friends of all the times you voice that. Yeah. But this is what happens in our mind after a breakup, that it suddenly everything seems like, oh, this was actually the best thing ever. One of the points you make, and I think it's a, a very, very interesting point, is that when hearts break, brains and bodies break too. Explain more about that. So one of the most surprising findings um, that I came across when I was uh, you know, reading some of these journals was by scientists who research love and consequently also heartbreak. And there was a whole discussion in the literature about whether love can be classified as an addiction which it's an interesting idea. Mm -hmm. um, but their point about it was, um, if you look at what love does, or infatuation really rather, let's say that, because love in the deeper sense and the long-lasting sense less so, but infatuation, if you look at what that does, um, it looks remarkably like addiction. Because when you're infatuated, the only thing you think about is that person. The only thing you care about is that person. Nothing else seems that exciting or relevant or interesting 
but that person. When you're with that person, everything's fine. When you're not, it's not. Um, and you... And so researchers started looking at what happens in the brain, and they saw, wow, our brain is responding to heartbreak exactly the way a heroin addict's brain is responding to withdrawal from heroin, mind you. Um, and you see the same thing in the initial throes of heartbreak, the massive desperation, the, the, the any kind of desperate attempt to try and get the person back, the one, you know, the hundred texts, the phone calls, the messages, the stalking, the threats, the, 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 you know, people behave completely out of character. They do things they would never do otherwise. Proud people beg and grovel and, and you, you compromise when you never would. And this is exactly what you see with a heroin addict who's willing to do anything to get their fix, um, however demeaning, however out of character. Um, it's that desperation is that significant for them, for the heroin addict. Addict, and indeed for the heartbroken person, except here's the one difference. The heroin addict knows they're addicted to heroin and their behavior is clear to them. In other words, yeah, I'm addicted to heroin. I know it's bad for me, but I want it. I, can't, I, I need it. Um, the, the heartbroken person doesn't realize they're addicted. They, doesn't realize they, they don't realize they're going through this real withdrawal in their brain um, that there is causing their behavior and their perceptions and their feelings to be massively altered. So they just think, I'm going crazy, or what's wrong with me? So on top of the heartbreak, there's this, all this distress about what am I doing? What is happening to me? Because they're not clear that actually your brain is behaving like you were withdrawing from heroin. So that should explain what's happening to you because it looks just like it. When people know that, it does bring them, A, a little bit of comfort, at least, okay, at least I'm not crazy, and also a sense of, okay, now I know what I'm up against in terms of resisting these things, because it's going to be difficult to resist these things, these urges to stalk and to call and to text and to beg and to grovel and all those things. So there's our brain literally does break in that uh, sense, and our, our body is going through a significant significant amount of stress because heartbreak doesn't last for an hour. It lasts for weeks and months and, as I said, sometimes years. And so your body is under significant stress during that time. And we know stress is bad for you, you know, the cortisol and all of that. It suppresses the functioning of your immune system. So suddenly you're getting flus and you're sick and you're heartbroken and now you're not feeling well. So yeah, our brains and our bodies break when our heart is broken. It's a much more serious thing than we uh, give it credit for. How is the healing process different for when somebody experiences a breakup versus when somebody dies? Um, in terms of the healing, I mean, the, the thing you need to do with a, with a breakup is you really need to change your perception of the person. Because if you're going to try and get over the perfect person that you're, you're thinking about and all the perfect moments that we tend to think about, that's going to be much harder than getting over the actual person with all their flaws and the actual relationship with all its shortcomings. And so we need to really balance that out in order to recover. And when someone's died, we don't need to vilify them and think of all their shortcomings and all their faults and all of how they annoyed us to get over them. There are other ways in which we can do that. But when somebody dies, there's also much more legitimacy. We get much more sanctioned support from the people around us, from our employers, from our friends, from our family. It's, it's, it's much more obvious that, that something really bad happened and, and, we're, and it's legitimate for, our, legitimate for us to be grieving. Um, and, and so at, at least we get that measure of support. What, what they very much have in common is that the loss 
we lost somebody, regardless of whether they died or broke up with us. We lost a fundamental part of our life. We lost our partnership. We lost our couplehood. We lost, uh, if we're living with a person, literally our routines of the day to day. We lost the person who organized our social life in some cases, the person who did our cooking, the person, you know, in all our divvying up of responsibilities, we lost all the person who does the other half that we're not doing. And so there's a massive rebuilding that needs to be done. And people tend to think of heartbreak over, I just need to get over the person. Um, no, this is why it takes people so long to, to, to heal. You have to do way more than get over the person. You have to rebuild your life. You have to reconnect to your sense of self, to who you are, to what your life is about, to what matters to you. Um, we make so many compromises in relationships about what we don't do and the people we don't see. So now we should reconnect to those people if we want to, or at least ask ourselves if we want to. There's a lot of actual stuff we need to be uh, you know, doing to rebuild um, after loss and after heartbreak, whether from death or, or from a breakup, uh, because there are now these big voids in our life and we have to fill them. The sooner we fill them, the easier the breakup and the recovery will be in case of the grief. Um, but we need to get our attention to doing that. Um, so when a spouse dies, you're not going to go and, you know, uh, and, you know, and find a new, you know, person to be with within a day, but you do have to think about literally basic stuff after a breakup and after a death like that, like, well, who's going to be responsible for this now? Or what do I do with these evenings now? And like, who do I call in the morning when I want to talk to someone because I'm used to talking to someone who can I you know share good news with um, you know we, down to that level of specificity you have to go and one final question our show is called nobody told me and we always like to ask our guests what's your nobody told me lesson what is it that you've learned about this that you'd like to pass on to other people that that nobody told you that surprised you I'm 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 hesitating because I have 10 um, but um, <laughs> Because nobody told nobody told me most of these things about heartbreak. Um, what, what the people what I knew about heartbreak before I started, you know, reading these things and and is that oh, you know, it just takes time. Time will heal all, and just you know, be able to talk to someone once in a while. That's it. And heartbreak is so much more complicated than that. And and what it does to us, mind, body, and soul, is so much more complicated than that. And and the and we have to be. And this is my work in general with emotional health. Emotional health doesn't just happen. We need to take a very much a leadership managing uh, a position on it. We have to be in charge of our emotional health. We have to proactively um, stake it out and do the things that are good for us and avoid the things that are bad for us and understand the difference because we have no clue what those things are to begin with. So what nobody told me is that to recover emotionally from any kind of emotional blow um, is not just a matter of time. We need to proactively manage our recovery and make it happen uh, rather than just let it happen. Interesting. That's a very good answer to that. Yeah, really good answer. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. And uh, how can people find out about you online or on your social media? And how can people get your books? So my book should be available everywhere. It's called How to Fix a Broken Heart. Um, you can find links to sellers of my books um, through my website, which is guywinch.com. That's G-U-Y-W-I-N-C-H.com. You'll find links to my TED Talks, to my articles. I blog for Psychology Today. Um, and uh, you'll find you know links to my uh, Twitter and uh, Facebook uh, author page. And you will find where to buy my books. My books are in 25 languages. And so you'll find links 
links to most of those countries and where you can purchase them in any language should you um, prefer non-English. Okay. Um, and uh, that's the best way to get the info. All right. Thank you so much, Dr. Winch. Again, that has been Dr. Guy Winch, author of the new book, How to Fix a Broken Heart. I'm Jan Black. And I'm Laura Owens. And you're listening to Nobody Told Me. Thank you for joining us. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.